welcome to Uplift, a podcast about the transformative power of design from architecture and design firm MBBJ. I'm your host, Daphne Corona. Each episode, we chat with people from all over the healthcare continuum who've been deeply affected by the built environment. On today's episode, it could be your grandma, your spouse, your coworker, or maybe even you. We're talking today about the mental health epidemic. And whether you suffer directly or indirectly through a loved one, we all experience its consequences. Much attention in recent years has been paid to pediatric mental health, a topic we covered last season. But now we want to turn our attention to adults, where there's so much to be hopeful about when it comes to behavioral health treatment. In fact, new treatment approaches that decrease stigma and reduce anxiety, coupled with a growing realization that buildings can be part of the healing process, are paving the way for what mental health treatment can look like. To discuss this in depth, we're joined by Dr. Mark Rappaport, CEO of the University of Utah Huntsman Mental Health Institute, and Rosalie Zoll, Director of Planning at Bewell Orange County. We'll discuss the current behavioral health landscape for adults, promising new models of treatment, and design principles for the next generation of healing therapeutic facilities. Let's dive in. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Dr. Rappaport, I'll start with you. You're the CEO of the University of Utah Huntsman Mental Health Institute, and you're also the professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry. Tell us about yourself and your role. Well, I'm fortunate to be at the University of Utah because the University of Utah is the only AAU university that said mental health and substance use disorders is our priority. And so what they've done, partnering with the Huntsman family, plus the state, what they've done is created a unique entity, the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. It's a university-wide institute with university-wide range. And the goal of the institute is to really break the mold, to create new models of care, new approaches to care, new approaches to trying to understand the complex problems of mental health and substance use disorders, not only for the entire state of Utah, but beyond. So speaking of breaking the mold, Rosalie, you're the director of planning at Bewell OC. So you're actually working to build mental health clinics in the Orange County area of California. Can you tell us about the organization and what you do there? Absolutely. Thanks, Daphne. It's a pleasure to be here. So Bewell is located here in Orange County, California, and it's a unique public-private partnership. Uh, we are actually a, a nonprofit that is bringing together partners and entities from all around the county, everywhere from hospital partners, county insurance providers, community-based organizations, faith-based, academic, all coming together with a singular goal to drastically improve the mental health and wellness of all residents here in the county. And I have the sort of great pleasure of being able to lead our facility planning and development efforts for this coalition here. And one of our key strategies is around creating infrastructure uh, to support this vision. Wonderful. So one in five adults experience mental illness in 2020. I think all our listeners today have been affected by it. It's in every home, it's every generation, our children, our friends, our parents. Before we get into this topic, I'd like to ask each of you, do you have a personal connection to this issue? Dr. Rappaport, I'll start with you. Yes, I certainly do. My mother throughout my childhood suffered from 
severe treatment-resistant depression. And in fact, you know, the, the day I got into medical school, my father was away at the American Board of Internal Medicine meetings. My siblings were out of the country. My girlfriend at the time was working until 10 that night. The only person I could tell was my mother. And so I waited until visiting hours and went to the hospital and told her she was getting ECT at the time. That's heartbreaking. Rosalie, what about you? Any personal experience with mental and behavioral health? I do, actually. You know, just to share my own personal story, I, I lost my husband to a very difficult battle with cancer just 18 months ago. And through that have been through my own sort of personal roller coaster journey of processing trauma and grief, not only for myself, but for my young children and my family. And it has just shined the brightest light on the importance of mental health and wellness. So I'd like to get into some of the background around mental health and define some of the modern factors that contribute to its rise. Dr. Rappaport, could you summarize the trajectory that mental health has taken over the past several years? What we've seen, and and you can go back and look at the epidemiology work over the last 100 plus years, is a significant increase in um, the diagnosis of depression, the diagnosis of anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders, and the increased frequency of psychosis as well. But it's really accelerated, particularly with COVID, the second pandemic. What we know from the CDC data is that over 40% of adults were saying that they were having problems with anxiety and depression during our time with COVID, and that's persisted. We know that with the advent of COVID, all of a sudden people had a lack of control, a lack of agency. All of a sudden people uh, felt isolated. We had circumstances where many people and many families lost loved ones. And there were feelings of, of both tremendous mourning as well as guilt in individuals that survived. So for a host of reasons, We've seen a marked increase in in mental health and and substance use disorders, greatly stimulated by the pandemic. And this is particularly true for our young people. You talk about young people and during the pandemic, you know, let's talk about things that hinder mental health, like screen time and stress and burnout and that loneliness you were mentioning. Rosalie, can you elaborate on some of the things we're dealing with as a society that are hindering our mental health? Yeah, I think just to build off of Dr. Rappaport and our partnerships here at Be Well through local hospitals and the school districts, we're just seeing just what he described, the sort of deeply saddening rise in the number of children and adolescents needing care and support. And in turn, you know, I know we're talking really here today about adults. What that means is the effect it has on their caregivers and their families. And, you know, I think so often in our current systems of care, We focus so much on the individual, but don't necessarily do a good job of caring for the entire family unit. And so what often happens is you have family members who end up feeling just incredibly overwhelmed, confused, and struggling with shame and stigma. And, you know, I think we have a huge opportunity to think about how are we providing care to the ecosystem, whatever that family unit may look like, how are we thinking about family-centered care? You know, we're also your point about loneliness and isolation, I think we have to talk about how that translates into our senior population. So often we have seniors living alone in our culture um, and in our country here. 
losing a sense of purpose in their life. I think finding ways to create connections between intergenerational populations, um, there's a lot of opportunity and hopefulness there, um, especially as we think about how we design facilities and spaces. Rosalie, you touched on that concept of the stigma of seeking mental health treatment. According to the World Health Organization, 30 to 80 percent of people with mental health conditions don't seek treatment. What are some of the reasons for this? We're seeing, you know, a really positive increase in the sort of normalization around mental health and sort of open discussion. I think there's still a lot of cultural nuance that we need to understand in our communities. And there's a lot of stigma and we need to figure out creative ways to connect to different communities and different cultures around this topic. You know, if I can expand on that a little bit, we actually have launched a national campaign to eliminate mental health and substance use disorder stigma. And if you go back and look at the National Academies of of Medicine, they published a report in 2016 where they identified three different forms of stigma, self-stigma, social stigma, and institutional stigma. We currently are partnering with the Ad Council and over 300 organizations nationally with the intent over the next decade to eliminate the shame, the guilt, the fear, the ignorance, and the prejudice that currently exists for people with uh, mental health and substance use disorders, because they cause more disability worldwide than cancer, than heart disease. And these are disorders of the brain that can be treated by a host of interventions. Dr. Rappaport, you mentioned that disability, and that can impact everything from homelessness to poverty, unemployment, safety. I think we're all feeling it in our community. Rosalie, I'm wondering for you, in your organization, what happens when people don't get the care that they need? We aren't able to reach people early. It leads to increased moments of crisis. The challenges don't go away, and it's really not something that you can tackle on your own. And so when people reach that level of crisis, I think, unfortunately, historically, the only solutions that people have had is to either go to the emergency room, emergency department, or to end up in jail. And neither of these places are equipped to help someone in a state of mental health crisis. And in fact, often those environments with bright lights and flashing strobes, all they do is exacerbate the crisis and and make it much worse. And I think, you know, the good news is that we're starting to see a shift in the types of services and environments that are available to support people. Yeah. Just from our discussion over the past few minutes, it seems that access to care is a continual barrier. I think, you know, anyone who's tried to find care for their teenager, a loved one over the pandemic, um, just struggles. Even when you do find a provider, the wait lists are long, your insurance doesn't cover. It's just quite a maze. You know, you talked about people coming to emergency rooms and most emergency rooms are overrun and they're short staffed. Dr. Rappaport, can you talk a little about the new reality of providing care? Well, the new reality of providing care is is actually an exciting time. And the reason why it's exciting is that we're beginning to understand that one size doesn't fit all. That we have to have many, many different individuals involved in providing care, that it's a team-based approach, and also that a person may require a step-based model of care. And by that, I mean the following. If one looks at the work of David Clark in the UK and the IATAP program, where they're providing 
care for the National Health Service and treating millions of individuals. What they've found is using a measurement-based approach to care, about 35% of people, um, all they need is some peer supports and some bibliotherapy. Another, about 30 to 35%, require that and a brief, focused, evidence-based approach to care. And only the last quarter to third require um, to be seen regularly by mental health professionals. The other aspects of access to care that are important is we will learn how to use passive measures um, to monitor care, as well as apps to help with this process with time. The other thing that's happening that I'm sure that Rosalie's organization is doing this as well, is understanding the power of peer support and the value of people with lived experiences engaging and helping others with lived experience. It doesn't always have to be a licensed professional in order to provide some of the most important care that an individual may have. Dr. Rappaport, I really love that idea of passive care and app-based care because, you know, behavioral health is typically not a moneymaker for hospital systems. What are the funding realities of behavioral health care? The challenge we face today is that the U.S. healthcare system is heavily dependent on point-of-service care and fee-for-service care. And the problem with that model is that um, the way fee structures have been established, one is actually paid for intervening with sick people. So one's paid for surgeries, one's paid for infusions, one's paid for hospitalizing individuals. If one looks at at many other countries in the rest of the world, they're much more focused on preventative care. They're much more focused on models of care that keep individuals integrated in the community. Dr. Rappaport, you're overseeing the Huntsman Institute, a new project at the University of Utah. And this translational research building unites environmental, clinical, and dry research all under one roof. It also prioritizes the health of people and the planet through progressive sustainability features like geothermal energy and mass timber, and neuroarchitecture principles like soft curves, skylights, and nature. Can you talk about how this new building and its design support all this collaboration? Certainly. You know, as I talked about earlier, our idea is to break the mold. We don't believe that you can tackle these complex problems that we have with mental health and substance use disorders by using the traditional siloed approach that we've had in the past. And so our intent is to create research neighborhoods. And these research neighborhoods are are inclusive um, areas where we bring together people uh, that reflect the entire strength of an AAU university. So we'll have people from fine arts that are interested in in areas of mental health and substance use disorders, people from population health, people from anthropology and sociology, working with experts in law and public policy, as well as individuals that are experts in AI and big data. And then we have the more of the traditional areas, the experts in implementation science and clinical science, translational and basic science, all working together with their students 
with their graduate students on broad areas of interest. So for example, one of our research neighborhoods looks at suicide and, and all aspects of, of, of suicide. Another looks at child mental health. And again, everything from the role of law and policy to um, really exciting work with big data and AI that may lead us to predisposing factors that we might be able to intervene in early with families and, and individuals to prevent young people from developing mental health, mental health illnesses. And so instead of having big lobbies, we have meeting rooms around the center of the building. And instead of having siloed areas for research, we integrate our wet lab researchers, our dry lab researchers, our clinical researchers into the same type of space. So it's an entirely different approach to how we're going to work together to tackle these complex problems. So, Rosalie, you have the Bewell Orange Campus, and you have toured me there. It's such a beautiful facility, so unique. Um, it's a first treatment facility built and run by your organization. Tell us a little about the space. How is the design of the building supporting the treatment that's happening inside? Sure, absolutely. And I'd and I just like to comment before jumping into the, the building itself. I think, Dr. Rappaport, you make such an important point that this is about system change and buildings and infrastructure is sort of a tool in the tool belt and one small piece of it, that this requires truly a full community effort um, to, to shift the needle in this work. And so for us at Be Well, the buildings are just one part of the puzzle. They, they provide sort of a venue for um, trying to push the needle and create integration. And but it's just one, one piece of the puzzle. So I'll, First campus, as Daphne mentioned, is uh, in the city of Orange. It was sort of our test site, and really it was about trying to change the um, perception of what it means to come to a mental health f facility. So we thought a lot about how do we not make this an institution, but instead a place that when you walk in the door, you feel immediately a sense of respect and dignity, a sense of hope. Um, just in the same way that if you were going to get treatment for cancer or for your heart, um, that going to get treatment for your mental health is just as important and you should feel just the same level of respect and care. So we thought a lot about how do we not make this an institution? We are really excited about the opportunity to develop our second campus, uh, which we will happen over a number of years across about a 20-acre site and is going to allow us to develop a, a full continuum of care, everything from health and wellness and a full kind of community cultural center, um, full of education and prevention and art and dance, everything to a crisis, urgent care, residential treatment, spaces for outpatient programming, and truly supporting the whole family, everything from children, adolescents, perinatal care, allowing mothers to stay with their children as they go through uh, journeys of recovery. Um, so we're really excited to uh, try to sort of offer an example to the community of how we can rethink what this journey can look like. Rosalie, for the healthcare systems that may be listening and have limited funding or support, where would you suggest they start design-wise to best use their dollars? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're very well aware that 
not everybody has a 20 acre site lying around in their backyard. <laughs> That's a, a rare and unique opportunity. And so I think it is really important to think about where might you start. You know, we're definitely seeing that services such as a crisis stabilization unit, which is you know somewhat like a mental health urgent care and really allows you to offload volume from an emergency department, that can be a pretty small square footage and relatively low upfront investment, but really significant impact on the system. We're also finding that our law enforcement partners are one of our biggest advocates for these crisis stabilization units. They're able to bring clients to us and within 10 minutes, they're back out in the field and doing the work they want to be doing. So I think you know that partnered with, uh, we're also starting to open sobering centers, which are for um, individuals struggling more in a detox situation. Those two combined can be a really effective first, first step. You touched on the crisis stabilization units. Dr. Rappaport, are there other spaces um, that are really critical to delivering the care? What are your most used spaces and why do you think people gravitate towards them? Well, actually, we're in the process of building a second building, which is a crisis care center, but it's designed differently than traditional crisis care centers. And by that, I mean the following. We'll have one entrance for law enforcement and our mobile assessment team, another for families and and people coming in. In our 23-hour sort of stabilization areas, we've created three pods of, of 10. And the intent of that is not just to have the, the typical recliner chairs, but we actually have couches and other space for individuals so that they aren't confined to that. And by having three pods of 10, we can have an area for more extremely ill individuals and unstable individuals and other areas for um, people that um, may not be as agitated or concerned. We also are using variable light so that we can use non-visible aspects of the spectrum of light that have been demonstrated to, to have a calming effect on individuals. We've done the same thing with in the upper floor. We have three pods of eight for an inpatient unit. But I think the most exciting thing is we've added a third floor with a free legal clinic, a free dental clinic, a free medical clinic, space for our partners um, to provide um, help with, with shelter and with supportive housing, as well as uh, individuals that will help register people for medic, what we call um, our equivalent of Medi-Cal and, and Medicaid and other services. Both of your organizations are providing such a rich, full continuum of care. What advice would you give to healthcare systems who are looking to incorporate some of these ideas that we've discussed, but they have limited budgets or limited space? You know, they may be a city campus or a publicly funded hospital. Are there some ideas that are more valuable than others? And are there scalable ideas that can still make a difference for systems? Well, let me start, and then Rosalie, I sure ha- I'm sure has a lot to add there. But I think the first thing we have to do is, is we have to flip the discussion. Because as Rosalie pointed out earlier, and we're actually partnering with our school of business and, and looking at and monetizing the social impact of what we do, we actually are spending more money than we need to right now because We're incarcerating people with mental health and substance use disorders, and that's much more expensive than providing the type of care we're talking about. 
The amount of time that law enforcement needs to spend when someone is taken to a general hospital emergency room because they have to wait until there is a disposition versus being out in 10 minutes, as, as Rosalie was talking about. The savings to healthcare systems by having these um, types of, of crisis care circumstances and other services in place, they're much greater than the cost of, of these services themselves. Yeah, I add to that, you know, I just going back to something you said earlier, Dr. Rappaport from the UK, where they were looking at sort of a 30-30-30 split. One of the things that we've also started to focus very heavily on is a mobile crisis program, um, which you may very well be doing as well. But that's a, you know, nothing to do with facilities, um, and it's much lower cost. We have vans that we have renovated that we go out into the community, um, often with providers who aren't necessarily licensed, but they are, they are you know, trained in, in, in crisis um, care. They go out into the community and meet people where they are. And we're finding just kind of incredible data around really low percentage of those individuals who actually have to come to a facility. Well, as those of you who are familiar with the podcast know, we like to end each episode on an uplifting note. So I'd like to ask each of you, what is our hopeful path forward when it comes to the future of mental health care for the adult population? Dr. Rappaport, I'll start with you. Well, I think the future's bright. I think that for the first time, our society is really excited about ad addressing mental health care and substance use disorders. And it's the right time to do this. You know, the advances in neuroscience going on, the advances in clinical care, the understanding that if we take a more holistic approach to taking care of patients and their families, that we can really facilitate a better society and facilitate people getting back to work. I think that the next 30 years is going to be transformative for mental health and substance use disorders, the way the last 30 years was transformative for cancer. You truly are breaking the mold. Rosalie, what about you? What gives you hope when it comes to behavioral health treatment? So I think, like Dr. Rappaport said, I think we're in sort of a new chapter, a new wave around mental health. And part of that is that there's actually finally some financing that's becoming available to support both reimbursement and infrastructure, which, you know, hasn't been really seen ever in this, in the kind of degree that we're seeing it. Um, so that gives me hope. I think the other big piece, though, honestly, is seeing what's happening in our schools. I have two young daughters who are in elementary school, and seeing that mental health and wellness is starting to get talked about at a really early age. I feel like this starts with our kids and with our youth. And there's some wonderful programs that are popping up here in Orange County around well spaces. Um, they're creating these well spaces within our local schools. And they're just these beautiful, calming environments and just taking over maybe a small conference room and creating a place of respite on a school campus where kids are Welcome to just come and sit and take a break. And just seeing little things like that popping up in our school system, seeing the acknowledgement of how important this is and that it's something that we can talk about from the very beginning of our school education, um, that, that really gives me hope. Normalizing the conversation is truly the first step of breaking the stigma so important. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my guests, Dr. Mark Rappaport and Rosalie Zoll. 
For more information on the ideas discussed on today's episode and to see pictures of the next generation of behavioral health facilities, please visit our website at nbbj.com. If you like what you heard, please share, like, or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you on the next episode.